Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we discuss episodes 21 and 22 of Neon Genesis Evangelion, which means we're going to talk a lot about the show's backstory and, of course, Asuka Langley Sorian. We won't spoil anything from future episodes of the show, but we will point out foreshadowing where it's relevant. Human Instrumentality Podcast Unit 11. Launch. Episode 21. The Birth of Nerve. We open with video footage from the year 2000. Kiel, the leader of Zele, and Gendo discuss the arrogance of scientists as they watch the footage of Adam breaching the surface and beginning the second impact. Back in the present, Kaji tries to call Misato, but can't reach her. Misato is too busy being briefed. Futsuki has been abducted. The nerve suits believe Kaji is responsible, and they arrest her. Futsuki is being interrogated by Zele, who say that they have no intention of creating a, quote, new god, unquote. By referring to him as Professor, Kiel prompts a flashback to 1999. In that time, Futsuki meets with Yui Ikari to discuss a brilliant paper that she wrote, and he inquires about her future. She says she may choose a domestic life if she finds the right guy. Back in the future, Zele are furious about Unit 1 and say it has become some sort of deity. Can they trust Gendo with it? Of course they can't. Back in 1999, Futsuki first meets Gendo, whose last name at that time is Rokobuki. He's just been arrested for a bar fight. We learn that Yui and Gendo have been dating for some time. She's the one who sent Futsuki to pick him up. The rumor is that Gendo's only dating her to get close to an organization she's a part of. Zele. Fast forward to right after Second Impact. Fiutsuki lives in a half-sunken ship as a doctor, but is being recruited for a recon mission to the Antarctic. On that mission, Fiutsuki reconnects with Gendo, who apparently was in Japan on the day of Second Impact, though he was part of the Katsuragi mission at the time. We learn Gendo and Yui are now married with a son. Gendo introduces Fiyutsuki to a young Misato in solitary confinement. She's the last survivor of her father's mission. She hasn't spoken since. On the mission, Fiyutsuki rejects Gendo's benefactors, Zele. Fiyutsuki then recalls how Zele covered up the second impact and how Kiel orchestrated it. Futsuki confronts Gendo at the UN Research Laboratory for Artificial Evolution. He has figured out that Gendo and Zele knew about the date of the second impact via the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that Gendo has been secretly amassing a large amount of money. He intends to expose the conspiracy. Instead of denying it, Gendo takes him to the Geofront, identical to Adam's chamber in the Antarctic. There, in the under-construction Nerve HQ, they meet Naoko, Ritsuko's mom, hard at work inventing the Magi. She, Gendo, and Yui are all part of a new secret organization, Gehern. Together, they show Fiyutsuki the under-construction Ava Unit Zero and ask him to join them. Bumper. He was aware that she was still a child. 
In 2005, Ritsuko narrates her first encounter and budding friendship with Misato, the only person who treats her as more than just her famous mother's daughter. She also recalls Misato's relationship with Kaji and their infamous week-long sex binges. Somehow, the three of them become best friends. Fuyutsuki meets Yui by a lake while she takes care of a toddler, Shinji. He's nervous. The Dead Sea Scrolls give them only ten years until the third impact. Yui says that breaking the next seal could mean the apocalypse, and Fuyutsuki promises that next time he won't be swayed the way he was before. He urges her not to be Zele's test subject, but she says she's going to do it for Shinji's sake. Then we cut to the Unit 1 activation test. Shinji is present. Yui wants him there to, quote, see the bright future ahead of him, unquote. Those were her last words. Directly after, Gendo proposes the Human Instrumentality Project. In 2008, Ritsuko is a new hire at Gehirn, and witnesses Naoko and Gendo making out on the command bridge. It turns out Ritsuko's mother always secretly wanted Yui out of the way. Years later, Gendo shows up to work with a very young Rei, who instantly reminds Naoko of Yui, but she can't find any records of Rei having a past. Later, Naoko finds Rei wandering alone. The young toddler calls her an old hag and tells her those are Gendo's words, not hers. Naoko strangles young Ray to death, saying, There are plenty of replacements for you, Ray, just like me. As a result, Gehern is disbanded by Kiel, and Nerve is created in its place. Everyone at Gehern moves to Nerve except Naoko, who has leapt to her death on the command bridge. In the future, Kaji springs Futsuke, immediately after Misato is released and told that the matter has been resolved. Kaji has been killed by an unseen gunman. Misato returns home and finally gets Kaji's voicemail. He says she has the truth with her, and if he gets to see her again, he'll say the words he couldn't before. She bursts into tears and collapses, while Shinji buries his head in a pillow. Episode 22. Staying Human. On the evening before her move to Japan, Asuka lies on a beach next to Kaji at night. She attempts to seduce him, but Kaji rejects her. He says she's still just a kid. But Asuka insists she's an adult, and as she does, the camera fixates on the image of a decapitated child's doll. We flash even further back to the funeral of Asuka's mother. Two funeral attendees, one of them is Asuka's father, talk about the circumstances of her death, suicide following a mental breakdown. That breakdown was the result of a contact experiment with an Evangelion. We flash back again. A young Asuka sees her mentally disturbed mother in a hospital ward. Her mother speaking to the doll from the image before, and she refers to that doll as her daughter. Asuka's father, still a disembodied voice, speaks to his wife's doctor. She says Asuka and her mother, the doctor is a woman, says Asuka and her mother look like a pair of matching dolls, and that not much separates people from dolls. Then, he and the doctor begin to flirt. Pretty soon, we hear them having sex. Flash forward. This entire time, Asuka's been in a sync test. Her rate is dropping. While units 0 and 2 are being repaired, Misato speaks with Hyuga outside of Nerve HQ. 
He tells her they're beginning to mass produce Evangelions around the world. In fact, Nerve's budget has been doubled. Zele is anxious or up to something. On a train station on the way home, Asuka tries to get in touch with Kaji, but his line has been disconnected. Across the platform, she sees Shinji talking with Rei. She feels envy at Shinji's victory and his ability to just return to a normal life. In Masato's apartment, the trio eat dinner in awkward silence. The phone rings. Masato wants Asuka to pick it up, but she won't because it's probably Kaji, she says. Soberly, Masato tells her that won't happen. Shinji picks up the phone. It's Asuka's mother. When Asuka hangs up, Shinji says he's jealous that Asuka can talk with her mother so casually. Asuka rebuffs him. It isn't her real mother, just someone her dad married. And the conversation is superficial. And after all, why is she talking to Shinji about her feelings anyway? Later, naked by the bathtub, Asuka pulls the plug and watches the water drain. She says she doesn't want to use the water, appliances, or toilet that Masato and Shinji use. She hates them, and hates Rei even more. She hates her father and her mother, but mostly, she hates herself. While Asuka throws a tantrum, Misato listens in the next room, surrounded by empty beer cans. The next day, Asuka's sink rates are lower still. Misato says that her living with Shinji and Asuka may be a bad thing now. Asuka finds herself in a long, very uncomfortable elevator ride with Rei, which ends in Rei telling her that the Avas won't work for her if she puts up an emotional wall between them. Asuka rejects the advice. The Avas are dolls to her. And so is Rei, in fact. She slaps Rei for saying she'd kill herself if Commander Akari asked. Asuka talks to her now-regenerated Unit 2 later. She reminds it that it has no agency and needs to follow her directives, in direct contrast to Rei's advice. Just then, an angel alert goes off. Bumper, don't be. The 15th angel appears in satellite orbit. It's yet to make any move, and they have no idea what its combat abilities might be. So Nerve preps Unit Zero to snipe at it with the Positron rifle and orders Asuka to support her from the rear. Asuka doesn't like that. She launches anyway. Ritsko says they need to find a replacement pilot for Unit 2. Shinji's ready for battle in Unit 1, but per his father's orders, it won't be deployed. Armed with a second positron rifle in a rainy Tokyo 3, Unit 2 takes aim. Asuka doesn't have a chance to fire at Ariel, the 15th angel, before it attacks with a beam of light. Instantly, Asuka's psychological charts go haywire, and Ariel begins forcibly penetrating her mind. Even so, Asuka refuses to withdraw. She'd rather die than admit defeat. Ray attempts to kill Ariel with the sniper rifle that killed Ramiel, but it's not powerful enough to break an AT field at that distance. Meanwhile, Asuka undergoes her own angel interrogation. She relives the memory of her mother right before her suicide, asking Asuka to join her in death. And Asuka apparently agreed, except that her mother hung the doll, not her real daughter. Asuka's torturous visions include herself from earlier episodes being voiced by other characters and an empty train yard where she's accosted by hooded figures, illustrations and crayon of the scene of her mother's suicide. Finally, Asuka's confronted by a monochrome version of herself as a child with the face of a doll. 
in the end, Asuka is in the fetal position in an inactive unit two, crying. Begrudgingly, Gendo sends Rey to Terminal Dogma to retrieve the Spear of Longinus, the only weapon they have left that will work. Fiyutsuki protests, using the spear will make Zele angry. Gendo doesn't care. The mass production of Eva's means that he needs to advance his plans quickly, and he can't lose Unit 2. Ray descends to Terminal Dogma and pulls the spear out of the angel that is crucified there. Instantly, when the spear is out, it regrows its legs. Unit 0 launches the spear, which clears through the rain clouds, pierces Ariel's AT field with ease, and vaporizes the angel with one strike. The spear, however, is lost in lunar orbit. It cannot be retrieved. Asuka survives, but is totally devastated. Shinji tries to console her, but Asuka insists that she would rather have died than be rescued by someone like Rei. Typically, I think we try to take these things in relatively chronological order, but this... This cannot go unaddressed, I think. We just need to talk about the Asuka situation in these episodes because it is really heavy. It is a huge part of the fan culture of the show. It is the, it's the defining moment of Asuka's plot arc. And it deserves to take center stage when we're talking about these two episodes. Totally. In terms of the construction of episode 22 the way that the episode is organized i think it's an interesting episode because it's the first time in a while maybe ever that we've had an entire episode basically told from oscar's point of view and we couldn't have gotten a look into oscar's mind at a worse time for her the thing that makes this episode so dramatically painful is that she runs across an angel that is completely primed to take care of the weakness of her position at that exact moment. The entire episode is about her building these walls between her and other people and her not allowing her full self out, not allowing herself to be seen in her entirety to other people as a defense mechanism because if she were to do that, she would have to confront all of these parts of her life that she's not really willing to, you know, face directly anymore and then she crumbs across an angel that is all about this insane revealing light that forces itself down onto her and forces her to have all of those bad memories brought back up again and so it's it the dramatic irony is really really heavy uh and just the the brutality of this episode i think is even though it's not as visually horrifying as you know toji getting torn apart by the uh, by the dummy plug, I think it is the same kind of brutality just aimed at the psychological side of the series instead. It's remarkable how upsetting this episode is to me with it having like really like for, for a show that is remarkable in its comfort with ultra violence, very little violence. You, you get like there's a blink and you miss it little squirt of blood when Ariel gets vaporized and that's it. This is the most difficult episode for me to watch every time I watch this series. In other rewatches, I have skipped it because I find it too upsetting. I find it upsetting for a couple reasons. So let's let's run them down from probably like least superficial, from most superficial to least superficial. Most superficially, Asuka is just my favorite character and watching her, watching this happen to her is just upsetting on a fan level. 
I think relating too much to fictional characters is like not maybe like a good psychological thing. And maybe people in general do it too much. But at the same time, like fiction is an empathy machine. That's like its function to me. And this episode is very good at that to me. I know it doesn't do that to some people, but it does do that to me. And so I personally have a really tough time with, I literally put off watching this episode for almost as long as I humanly could. One of the first conversations Ian and I had when we talked about doing this podcast, me being like, shit, episode 22 is going to fucking suck. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's not fun. Like it is about the furthest away that the show could be from being a fun watch. It is incredibly upsetting. And I, I think, Oh, well, we should continue going down your list of uh, of individualized reasons why you find it so upsetting. But for me, at least, the sequence, the sort of psychedelic sequence, when we finally get a look inside of Asuka's head, is just so fucked up. It is, there's like this blood-curdling scream that happens at the end of it, combined with like a flat, a montage of flashing images that is just like hair-raising, end of Twin Peaks level, just like, oh God, I wish I didn't see that kind of energy i mean to me if we want to keep the twin peaks comparison going to me this episode is the is the the fire fire walk with me scene except unlike twin peaks it's not going to just weirdly become a normal soap opera right after this spoiler Mm -mm. no no (laughs) no we're gonna keep going down this road baby keep going (laughs) we still got other characters to ruin you know like this show is not done yet (laughs) a lot of people hate the angel interrogations, the psychedelic, like, sort of therapy sessions, but the series gets better and better and better at them as they go on. And Oscars is short. That's another thing that surprised me as I was rewatching. Like, oh, the thing that makes me super sad lasts three minutes. It, like, yeah. it's, it's not a lot of footage, but it all really works. Part of what makes it so upsetting, at least what was really upsetting to me this time around that I'd never felt before, was the sense that no one else cares that it's happening to her. Um, Yeah. And that's so real. That's so real. That is like one of the most acute observations that, that this series makes, and it goes almost unremarked on. Please continue. So this fight bears a lot of resemblance to the Ramiel fight in that it's a long distance enemy that, you know, the Ava, the Ava pilot gets immediately owned and they have to destroy it using a long range attack. But think about how in episode three, when Ramiel shows up, it shoots the laser, it hits Shinji, he screams and they pull him back down. They save his life immediately because everyone can recognize like, oh, if that continues, he will die. This happens, and everyone just reacts like, oh, Asuka should just get up and leave. Like, Asuka, why aren't you doing anything? And just refuses to take any action, and they just dilly-dally. There's no sense of urgency once she's been hit. It's just like, oh, I guess this thing is ruining her brain, but nothing we can do about it. And it really fucked me up. It's so It felt gross. It felt like gross incompetence on the part of Nerve and disregard for Asuka even the fact that like before she even engages they're like let's start looking for other pilots this girl's done right it's 
really, really cruel in a way that I, I, I had not noticed in previous watches. You said earlier that this show is about an older generation serving up a younger generation to be eaten, basically. And like this episode is like them watching this like watching this monster like lick the last piece of meat off of her ribs and be like, oh, well. We fucked that one up. Like, Fuski's more upset about them using the Spear of Longinus than saving Asuka's life. Or, or like, maintaining any utility of, of Unit 2. Like, even if they only really care about the Evangelion. It, anyway, we're getting a little far away. Let me, can I keep going down my list? Please do it. So, superficially, it's just because I like Asuka and, like, that this goes so badly for her is upsetting. On a personal level, two two things sort of sort of get this to me my grandfather died uh of complications relating to alzheimer's disease when i was very young um ian have you ever known anyone who has alzheimer's no i didn't know my grandfather well enough by the time that he died for i knew that he his memory was failing him in strange ways but i don't know if there was ever a real diagnosis and he died when i was too young to know exactly what the deal was I had no idea that we had that in common. Have we ever talked about this? It's not something I, I bring up much because it barely factors into my life and I don't feel it's my place necessarily to comment on it in any... I, I don't know for sure that he had Alzheimer's, but it's just... Okay. I've never talked to my parents about it. Oh. Well, now it's on a podcast. That's, <laughs> man, here's one of those moments when like fiction brings the truth out. So similar background, slightly different experience. I was a little older, like old enough to remember it. And like, I, I barely, barely, barely knew my grandfather before he got sick. But one of my earliest memories, like we're talking like second memory. Like, I think the oldest file in my box is an, interestingly enough, this will come back later, an image of a birthday cake. I think that is like my oldest memory. Mm -hmm. And like my second oldest memory is my grandpa in the hospital and um, he mistook me for my father. Very surreal. I think about that moment really often. And it's something that was like also like often remarked on supposed to be like a positive thing at family gatherings. Like, oh, my God. Also, by the way, I have my father, my grandfather's name. My grandfather's Joseph. I'm also Joseph. This is the thing my mm -hmm. family does. I grew up like going to family gatherings and people being like, oh, my God, you you look like him. You're just you look and he thought you were your dad. You're just like your dad. Isn't that great? Well, if you've ever watched Evangelion, being like your dad isn't always the best thing. Uh, <laughs> and having someone who you care about, who also cares about you, mistake you mistake something else for you or you for something else is really effing disturbing. And so, like, it's it, I know it doesn't translate completely, but the scene with. Asuka's mom and the doll and then the reveal that Asuka was willing to kill herself with her mom and her mom didn't even recognize a real daughter and like cut the doll's head off instead something about that like lands with me in like a, a deep gooey place a really vulnerable place mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's that's one that's one piece of it and i guess the 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 even deeper part maybe and this is why i think ian's observation about 
that no one really comments or cares about the horrible thing that's happening to Asuka is a really acute observation is because I don't think there's a good reading of this episode that doesn't translate what's what's going on to Asuka as like an assault and not necessarily in the sense of violence, but let's let's trace down the angel interrogations. Right. Shinji's been er interrogated twice and Mm -hmm. the the Lilial interrogation is maybe it's not consensual because he's stuck there in Lilial's void and he's sort of like stuck in the brain space with the angel. But it's a two way street. Shinji's answering Lilial's questions. Shinji's asking Lilial questions and Lilial sort of being this weird, like obtuse Zen Cohen generating machine, spitting them back out at him. And he doesn't like proceed to another vision from his past until he's like, sort of like completed that level of Lilial's puzzle box. Right. right. And his his like interrogation with unit one works in like largely the same way. Like he needs to get through this like corridor of 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 women in his life coming on to him and rebuff them until he can like get to this point where he's like rewarded with the memory from his childhood, right? Yeah, or it's it's more like that interrogation is entirely him turning in on his own mind, you know? Um, it's all right. generated by his own thoughts about like what he wants and what he realizes about himself. But right. both of those are, are extremely different from what happens here. Oscar doesn't get any say in, in like the vision. She like Ariel is like pulling her through her own subconscious. And you could interpret that as her being forcibly disrobed, psychologically forcibly disrobed. Yeah, I don't know exactly how it's phrased in the dub, but the sub makes it very literal. She describes it that way. She describes it as a rape. And that I think is like it, it goes it's it's she describes it that way from the, at the beginning and the way that she reacts at the end of it it all tracks. Like I don't think that's something that the show is doing by accident. Absolutely not. And um Speaking as a survivor, admittedly a man, like I I understand that some people don't like depictions of assaults like this in in fiction. Um, I tend not to either. This is like more symbolic, metaphorical, and it's also like masterfully done. So I can at least like sit through it without totally like having my skin crawl all the way off my body. And also like I think the acknowledgement of the phenomenon in fiction makes me personally feel like less of a fucking freak. So I appreciate it. But I like, I get a lot of pleasure out of this show. I get no pleasure out of this episode. None. I- except for like the pure technical, like the pure, like me, like trying to become a Vulcan, which is a defense mechanism. Like me trying to become a Vulcan and be like, look at how well constructed this is. Like, it has this effect in part because, I think both because of the content, but also because of the way that they present the content. Like, if this was sloppily done, I think we'd have a much different read on this episode. And maybe some people do. Like, this is not, like, my place to speak on. I'm sure other people with other experiences than my own could look at this as being grosser than it is. And to be clear, I'm not I, trying to speak for anyone else either. I, I just, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to, I just want to hop in. I'm not trying to speak for anyone other than me either. Like, if you want to skip 22, skip it. 
as a fan, the only thing I can really critique other fans for is I do think there is a glibness and I, I I think hopefully like this is a an artifact of older Ava fan culture that I just hope is not a part of the discourse about this show anymore that treats this as an extreme but kind of like treats that extremity in a glib way you know like like the TV tropes sort of way of talking about something like this um, right this episode is meant to be really fucked up and sad and I just hope that everyone recognizes that that's what it is and like keeps it moving. You know, like I don't, I don't think this is an episode for the edge Lords. <laughs> like you kind of have to be like a, an earnest person to take this episode at face value and just like that. If you're able to watch it, which I understand entirely if anyone is just like, nah, not for me for an episode like this at this point, totally fair. If anyone wants to bow out. Cheers to that. So now that we've now that we're there, let's talk about some of the images that go on during the terrible cell <laughs> because like it is really well done and it's worth it's worth parsing out. I I, mm-hmm. I think, and maybe yes. I'm wrong, but I think I think there's some interesting stuff going on here. I would agree. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in this episode. The yeah, it's it's we spend. Well, you you mentioned specifically the interrogation scene. Is are there any images that you want to highlight specifically? So when she's like accosted by the hooded figures. Uh, which mm-hmm. all I think, you know, maybe my eyes, are, it's it's certainly like depicted in like sort of like an optical illusion sort of way, but they all kind of look like Ray. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. I'm less interested in, in that, like it's Ray and I'm more interested in that. It's at this like ho- like muddy train yard is like where this happens. Really and fascinating because we've never seen that location any other time throughout the entirety of the show. My reading is that's where the train of thought lands. She doesn't even uh-huh. get to get on it. Yeah, that's a, a good read of it. Um, briefly, do we want to have a, a, a quick talk about the train of thought? Because we didn't mention one of the things that's really weird about the train of thought in the last pair. Sure. Which is that to- Toji's on it with Shinji and Ray. Like, that's one of the strangest scenes because what's what's being suggested there? Like, we see the train of thought as a, a visual metaphor within the interrogations, but in this interrogation, as well as in Toji's coma, it seems to just kind of show up as like like the unconscious of these characters in some way. Like it almost feels like Jungian, like a collective dream right. pool area, you know? That's my read anyway. I think it's sort of like the, ah, oh man, it's hard for me to get into what I think of the train of thought without spoiling things let's just let's hold off I'll, I'll we'll put a pin on it and we'll talk about it later but yes i agree that that particular scene from oscar's hallucinations it always shocks me it always is like oh this is different and her calling out to kaji or a figure that she perceives to be kaji um now yeah. that we know oh yeah by the way kaji's dead <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, right it, that's another thing that happened <laughs> so much happens in these this episode's gonna be so fucking long yeah She's also dealing with the fact that she understands that Kaji's dead and and that like Shinji and Ray are friends somehow, which I have thoughts on that, too. We'll circle back to the way that this show deals with Shinji's trauma and not showing it in these episodes. But this isn't about him. This is about her. This is about my girl. This is about my girl and what happens to her and how she got to be this way and how she got to be this way is fucked up up and in a way i think shinji got off fucking easy because at least his mom's gone you know like it like her mom's 
only half fucking gone. We can't, we don't know what it would have looked like for young Shinji to watch his mother dissolve into an Ava, <laughs> which, right. okay, now, now it's been made explicitly clear. That's what happens in the show. But yeah, I'm not here to play trauma Olympics between anime characters, but Asuka sure. definitely had a rough fucking go of it. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Sure. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have been comparing. I just like the, the mom reveal so twisted to me mm-hmm. and maybe that's because like i'm more of a mom issue guy than a dad issue guy this is a very daddy issue show so the mommy issue episode hits me yes um yeah. two episodes of mommy issues actually mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very it's a weird it's this is a weird pair but now it makes more sense the other issue that that fucks with me is and maybe this is just like a personal neuroses but like people with doll faces i can't fucking do it and that's not in even that's in all fiction. Like the reveal of like mm-hmm. the person with the doll face instantly just makes me want to leave the fucking room. Yeah, this this episode goes a lot into what I think of as the corn zone, which is like demented childhood imagery, the you know, corn like the issues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like the issues album cover of Evangelion episodes, you know, like it's something about specifically focusing on like we don't see like now in like these three episodes we've seen like little like little baby versions like the the chibi versions of all the characters right it it is kind of funny that the first thing we see of asuka is her just scowling as a child but then to like establish that this person has been basically angry her entire life because of all of this like ancillary trauma that is happening around her that adults are, you know, manipulating her or acting in ways that she can't understand around her constantly. And as right. a result, she's developed this need to be an adult and be in charge of her own life at all times. Um, it's, oh God, it's really heartbreaking. And I think now if you've listened to the podcast, you'll probably understand why we like really go in deep on Asuka's psychology in earlier episodes because knowing where it goes it's way more fascinating like knowing where she's coming from makes the her early episodes like way more fun to watch in my opinion that is that is like the strength of of these later episodes is they do make the beginning richer they make like Mm -hmm. they make like the 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 kind of Saturday morning episodes they give them an edge that you didn't see before and that's actually a something that's true of both of these episodes in their own way, but it's specifically in terms of how it addresses character motivations is totally very powerful. Very powerful. I speak, I mean, and Ian and I are two people who like, I mean, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself again. Part of the reason, like part of the reason I think I, I relate to Oscar is like, I, I'm one of those people who's like an angry kid. I've been angry my whole life. I get it. Part of me is just like Oscar buddy. Someone just should have handed you a copy of Slayer's Reign in Blood. And then you'd be leather, black leather jacket, Asuka, instead of crying in a fetal position, Asuka. Just kidding. The inside of black leather jacket person is the crying kid. It just looks cooler on the outside. (laughs) We should also talk about, we need to carve out some time, maybe about 53 seconds, uh, to talk about (laughs) another scene from this episode. Oh my God. That's right. The other iconic scene. I'm just going to go out and say it. If you think the elevator scene is bad, you don't understand art. (laughs) You're a dumbass and you need to 
get a grip and watch some fucking Tarkovsky, you fucking posers. It's like, watch That's- Stalker. <laughs> Boredom is a tool. Yeah. Uh, also, it's not boring if you've been watching the show. Like, people treat the elevator scene, which if you've, you know, if you're listening to the podcast, you know, is Ray and Asuka in an elevator by themselves in silence with next to no motion for 53 seconds straight. There's kind of this meta narrative of about the show where a lot of people, given the sort of looser psychedelic feel of this final stretch and knowing what they know about the troubled production history of the show kind of start to excuse a lot of interesting artistic choices as the result of budget cuts. Uh, There's a really good YouTube video about this scene in particular. He goes by the name of super eye patch wolf. I like his channel. YouTube never change. (laughs) (laughs) It's, he may, he makes this very good. Ultimately, the point of his video is that most art is made under some sort of limitations and that those limitations can breed creativity, which is also a Mark Rosewater quote. I don't know if he got it from Mark Rosewater, but that's where I first heard that particular phrasing. For those who don't know, Mark Rosewater is one of the head directors of Magic the Gathering. If that's a different nerdy thing that you're into, surprise, surprise, Ian is. Um, but anyway, this particular elevator sequence is not about visual motion. It's about the tension between those two characters. And it's about their inability to connect with each other. Oh shit, isn't that one of the main cores of, like, core themes of the show? Like, oh no, it's just budget cuts. Get the fuck out of here. Like, just analyze things past the surface, please. That's just all I ask of you. Totally watch the video, but let me just spoil his, his, like, Death Star laser against the budget cut argument and I can say it really quickly, is um, this is one of the first episodes where there is a director's cut of the episode. It's a few minutes longer. All of Anno's cuts are in the last few episodes of the show. And one of the only changes he made to this episode is he makes the elevator scene longer and he adds in Asuka flipping her hair once. It's interesting that his reaction under budget constraints wasn't make the downtime shorter, keep the hair flip in so they know we're actually animating this bullshit. It's fuck the hair flip, make it weird, right? make it feel fucking weird, dude. Yeah, and I mean, it's also in line with the tone of that particular episode. Like, not only have we had long static shots in Ava prior to this episode, like in episode... Episode two, at the end of episode two, there's the long Masato Shinji shot at the train station where no one moves and it's just music playing in the background, like faded in the background. Mm -hmm. In this exact episode, we have a similar sequence at the beginning when it's the dinner table scene, just like skin crawlingly tense, like awful, like awkward, dysfunctional family shit that just like makes me want to leave the room immediately the minute that scene starts playing. This scene is is so in line with that it's the same episode it's the same filmmaking style and it's all about making you feel how uncomfortable oscar is around all of these people and tying into that exact thing like the first thing that ray says which almost it sounds like a punchline when it comes out because the idea of ray after this long period of silence just offering unsolicited advice it's a it's a joke you know it is a setup and a payoff it is a joke 
of her saying you have to open your heart to the Avis. It's like that's the worst thing you could have said. It's like also you who doesn't feel feelings right are giving people emotional advice. You <laughs> weird sociopath regenerating child. Which maybe means we should, as much as I love episode 22, let's go back to episode 21 for a minute. Because episode 21 is like an entire other season of the show in 20 minutes. Yeah, um, I'd actually say that if you wanted just briefly on the budget cuts or production issues, this episode in some ways I think actually suffers from more of those than episode 22 does. This episode is told almost entirely through editing and and dialogue and writing. So essentially the animation gets a big break on this episode. It's told it's a lot of close-ups, it's a lot of static shots. There's almost no motion at all in this episode, which is fine because that's not the point of the episode. It's about the information that this episode is giving you, not about the visual storytelling as much that said they're really clever about how and when they give you specific information and it creates this really awesome kaleidoscopic genre shifting montage effect for 20 minutes straight and you come out knowing so much more than you did when you went in it's why we had such a I think I've said this before. I'm the one who writes most of the of of our like recaps. Writing the recap for this episode was so fucking hard because just like the funny episode with the spider angel, it's cutting constantly. It moves at a breakneck speed, even though no one's doing it. No one's taking action, but everyone's making choices. There's tons of setups and payoffs and the timeline jumps all over the fucking place. It just doesn't care about the timeline. I mean, let's talk about things we get in this episode. A complete character arc for Yui. Everything you ever wanted to know, well not everything, but like suddenly Shinji's dad like is not like a god. He's like a character who like did things, right? Fuyutsuki is a main character, weird. Ritsuko's mom. Right. Like you could Ritsuko's mom could have been a whole, like, arc in the whole show in and of herself. And, and that's amazing. You get creepy fucking baby Ray. You get Ritsuko's first, like, time meeting Misato. And it's sweet and kind of fun. And it works. And it's three seconds long. Mm-hmm. So much. How about the weird fucking reveal that Ikari is Yui's last name, not Gendo's? My take on young Gendo is that... He's actually a very, like, late 2010s kind of guy. Like, he is a scam god. Like... Yes. Gendo is, like, marrying Rich, essentially, and changing his name. It's some, like, weird Don Draper shit that he's got going on. Like... I love how little of Gendo that we get, but we also are like, oh, this guy is really bad news. Like, young Gendo creeps me out way more than old Gendo does. <laughs> like, young Gendo is, yeah, he's he's a scammer. He's entire, He's a social climber who is clearly using his relationship with Yui to get somewhere, and where he's getting is the human instrumentality pro- project. And that's horrifying. Like, what the fuck? Who is this guy? Where did he come from? And it's so much creepier 
getting just like these glimpses of like man from nowhere, no past, no people, you know, just glomming on to something and using it to fulfill some weird ulterior goal that he's had his whole life. He strikes me as like one of those people who did too much DMT like his freshman year of college and never quite came all the way down and it just changed his personality. You know the guy I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah. To me, he's that guy. Also, here's a weird creepy reveal. He's a really violent drunk. I mean, that to me is not too surprising. We never really see Gendo drink or have fun or do anything other than be at nerve for the majority of the show. But yeah, not too surprising that he's the kind of guy who's getting into bar fights the way he talks to the people around him. And also apparently his propensity for macking on literally every piece of tail in his fucking office. Like it's yeah. so bad. He's fuck Ritzko's mom. Can we talk about Ritzko's mom? Let's talk about Ritzko's mom, the weird Gothic horror story in the middle of this episode <laughs> yeah you get a bronte novel in 10 minutes i it's interesting to me that ritzko and her mom can only communicate by letter yeah and like in my head it's email and that's so real they're a, an interesting pairing because they both are like now we have a bit more of an understanding of like who ritzko is as a like young adult which is formative like we learn that she's basically like pretty much socially inept and doesn't understand people at all and like is kind of like as far as we know at this moment like a romantic or has not been in any relationships like it's kind of established like she just doesn't it just doesn't click with her at all and Naoko is also kind of similarly cold and removed and detached and so the two of them have just found this like equilibrium between themselves where it sort of works and it sort of doesn't but then yeah here comes Gendo <laughs> My question about the Naoko stuff is how much of what Ray is saying to her do you believe Ray is actually saying to her? Ray's a blank slate. I believe everything Ray is saying to her. Mm -hmm. Why on earth would Ray lie? Ray isn't Ray, Ray isn't like human enough to understand what the use of deceit is in that situation. I would let me put it another way is I think there's clearly a there's a break that happens, you know, when the animation gets all weird and then suddenly she's choking Ray. Right. And then like there's a moment of realization of what she's done where I wonder how much of it is just Naoko kind of going insane, filling in the blanks of what Ray is suggesting to be confirmation of her own fears and then lashing out or as, as a result of that. That said, Baby Ray is fucking creepy, fucking terrifying, just very unsettling looking little kid. Baby Ray looks like Shinji's mom. Yeah, that's weird. Weird. <laughs> very weird. Very like and considering all you know about about like what's going to happen with Ray in Ray's future of like Gendo like, oh, here's my hand over where your breast would be in the glass as I have you inside this weird spinal column mind cloning machine in front of Ritzko. <laughs> I feel like it's like Ritzko's entire life has just been like reduced to her observing Ray's progress. Yeah, you're right. Ever since she joins Gehern slash Nerve, it's like, that's it. You're on the Ray team, which is just like a really fucked up thing to do considering that Naoko kills Ray. Like, Ray dies. Yeah. So, but Ray is still alive. So, I don't know, guys. Put it, put it together. P 
<laughs> start Ray, doing some math here. <laughs> Ray does like to say that she's replaceable. Right. Very <laughs> weird stuff going on, certainly. And this, yeah, it's, uh, it's very unnerving. But, uh, okay, uh, do you have anything other to say about the Ritzko Naoko situation? There's this bit where Gendo, like earlier in the episode, is talking to Keel. Also, weirdly enough, this is you get so much Keel. Wait, hold on. Before we go there, I actually remembered my final point about the Naoko stuff, which is my my supporting evidence is of her going insane. Is that this is right after she uploaded part of her consciousness into the Magi, and right one of the recurring things in these two episodes is the mother characters subsuming themselves to some part of the technology and then going insane or just disappearing entirely in Yui's case. So I think that there's some credence to the idea that creating the Magi drove Naoko insane. Does that mean Ritsuko is the Asuka of her little triad? I think, well, they're all trapped. In, yes, I would say so, but there's probably no clear analogies. Each triad is is fucked up in its own way. Well, they both hate Ray. That's true. <laughs> it, and and Ray looks like shares some genetic material with with Yui, but we know that like Yui's will or her like soul or whatever is inside Unit One. Like we've established that. Yeah. So who's inside Ray? Kind of no one, and I think that's sort of the point, right? Right. That's why she's um, zero, right? Yeah. And I mean, we'll talk more about Ray next episode, but. I just wanted to mention that as proof that I don't think that we're supposed to take the Ray murder scene to be entirely literal by the very end of it. Or at least that there's there's more going on than just things that Ray is saying to to Naoko. Sure. I'm I'm okay with that. I but I also believe it for cuz cuz Ray's like inner persona is the dummy plug and the dummy plug's fucking vicious, right? Right. So like it it doesn't end as we've established multiple times, Ray has no social graces, period. Um, mm-hmm. Even as a teenager, with however many more years of social conditioning compared to this weird little baby Ray that came out of fucking nowhere, a fucking tube. So let's talk about Zele and Keel. What I was going to say is y- y- you get so much more Keel in this episode. Like, I don't even know if they referred to Keel's name more than once before this episode. And there was like three times people like Keel, Keel, Chairman Keel. And he's got some dialogue, but when he's talking with Gendo at the start, Gendo says something about the arrogance of scientists. And I, I interpret that as him like talking shit about Nauko. Uh-huh. That's, that's what I was wondering. Like, it's, it's funny that he's still like hung up on Nauko enough to be like talking shit about her when she's dead. Yeah, I, I would say it's it's probably that. It's also talking shit about Masato's dad and just in general, his point about the arrogance of man and the hubris of man is something that he, he harps on a lot in a, a variety of different episodes. That opening, that cold open, which crazy, a cold open in Neon Genesis Evangelion is great. It's so great. It's so creepy. Mm-hmm. The Like the, you know, almost like VHS footage of Adam awakening is oh man i love it when shows like it's just such a great shift in tone that is an example of them still making big swings and i love it i love that ava never stops trying you know it i it um it struck me as a maybe like a loving homage to john carpenter's the thing yeah similar vibes for sure 
I, I dug that a lot. The, the VHS, Ava even anticipated the nostalgia for 80s VHS before mm-hmm. anything else did. Let's see. Are there, yes, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Zele. There's a lot of Keel. This episode leans a lot into the like conspiracy Ava, which I know you're not that big of a fan of. I kind of like having it on the fringes of the show, but I agree that when it's the main ingredient, it's not what the show does best. But I like that there is constantly new information being revealed throughout the show. There's more layers of conspiracy. There's more hidden information because as we've brought up before, it sort of mirrors the fact that like no one tells Shinji anything and us as the viewers, we're constantly being told like, no, you thought you understood the situation, but you truly do not. I just don't really care about like, where's all the money going? You know, like you, right. you don't really have the range for that. Ava, you're not the wire. They're still doing it too. There's even in 22, there's Hugo being like, our budget is doubled. They're mass producing Evangelions, which I mean, maybe does in its own way have kind of a, an interesting payoff. But who can say? We could. We just won't. <laughs> but for the time being, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like, really? This is, you're going to spend 30 seconds of like my deep character dive telling me about the budget? Shut the fuck up. Like. That's my problem. It's not that it's not important. It's that I don't care. So maybe the fault is mine, right? To me, the things that I do care about with this with this episode is it's really the Yui stuff. Yeah. It's basically, it's everything that we ever see of Yui really happens in this episode. And her attitude about Nerve is kind of the key to unlocking a lot of how people act about the show. Like, she has no... She it seems like in that scene in the park, which is just beautifully shot, like really, really beautifully shot um, the way that it it holds back on showing Shinji or Yui's face for so long. And it's just showing all these like really poetic details before revealing that it's just like really great filmmaking under limitations. Her it seems at that moment that she knows that she's going to die. And that everything that she's been doing, including possibly destroying the world, is doing because if the world keeps going the way it's going now, she doesn't want that future for Shinji. So she'd rather take a big swing at something that may never happen, that may fail, because it's about preserving the the world for her son. That's really powerful. And I don't know, it feels like there's a lot of the post-second impact stuff that's like heavy to watch these days just because you you get the sense of like society kind of on the fringes trying to figure out like what world do we want to leave our kids and it's really powerful to see how yui navigates that question well it's it's powerful to watch that but it's also refreshing for me personally to just watch even in fiction a parent actually care about the future they're leaving their children uh mm-hmm. let's just put it there <laughs> there's a little millennial angst for you yui's cool there's so much in this episode that you forget like, Oh, this is where Kaji dies and you never see who does it. And it's a, it's a quick cutaway. It's a, it's a, um, it's a no country for old men. Yeah, it totally is. Holy shit. Yeah. They, they do Kaji. I think the thing is, is that the, the Kaji Masato sex scene is the last real scene we have with Kaji. Like that's the actual final moment. Mm -hmm. And this is all like, you know, the sun is literally setting behind him. And he tries to play it off so fucking cool. Yeah, let's let's wrap this one up talking about Kaji. So Kaji is kind of a dumbass, but that's why we love him. 
Uh, kind of. He's. I like having him. It's good to have him around on the show. Like that guy sort of sucks, but he does inject some pep into the show's step every once in a while. And he does everything he thinks he can do to help Misato. But the last thing that he leaves her is that voice message, which is just so hurtful. (laughs) Right. It's so unfair to Masato to leave that voicemail that way. It is such a fuckboy move until the end. You know, he just can't help but be himself up until the last moment of his life. And I kind of have to respect the integrity of a character like that. Like, oh, you're just <laughs> such a shithead. Are, like, we, just, are we... Go just on. say you love her. Just say you love her, you fucking asshole. Like, ugh, stop trying to be so cool, you idiot. And then, no, he's got to go out like a weekend song. Because he's heartless. Yeah, it's, it's just what it comes down to with Kaji. <laughs> It's it's interesting that like the death of Kaji is, was sort of when I got into this show sort of like cited by the fandom as like one of the peak uh, pieces of evidence of the show's ruthlessness in storytelling, its willingness to kill off beloved main characters, and now in like a post Game of Thrones world, that's kind of funny. Yeah, I'm nice like, try. <laughs> like Cute. we're we're in the end game now. I'm surprised more people aren't fucking dead. Like. <laughs> Right, like if this was if this was Game of Thrones, Kaji would have died uh, like three episodes into him being there. <laughs> like, oh, you like this guy? <laughs> we're gonna rip Fudski in half for no reason, <laughs> just because we're bored. Um, and we're gonna introduce three other characters to take his place in the next episode. None of whom you will like. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we can talk a lot of shit about that show, but that's not the goal of this show. This show is all about wrapping up the final oh man we've only got four episodes left of neon genesis evangelion to talk about that's crazy four episodes left of neon genesis evangelion left to talk about um i hope that somewhere in these final moments i can sneak in just a tad bit of fan service see you later joseph jesus christ thank you for listening if you liked the episode please rate review and subscribe if you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at another Avapod and on Instagram at humaninstrumentalitypod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week. <laughs>